0: Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Uh-huh, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually.
1: Do I have to say?
0: Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTO meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?
1: I never win in town.
0: Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky?
1: Hello, this is Glenda Cancel with RequisitionPractice.com, and today we are going to have a conversation with Matt Reed. He is an infrastructure expert uh, with many years of experience, and I would like to um, hand the um, floor over to um, Matt for a minute so he can tell us a little bit about himself and uh, how he got to where he's at and what he's doing, and then we'll jump into the topics. Matt, how are you? Oh,
0: I'm great, Glenda. Thanks. Um, happy to be here. Uh so I guess as you said, the first question is who the heck am I and what's my history? Mm-hmm. Um, I graduated college about thirty years ago and my first my first job was uh managing the computer department at the Radio Shack. So that <laughs> I know it's funny, isn't it? That, well, it's funny was,
1: because there's so many people I know who started at Radio Shack <laughs> IT. <Literally. laughs>
0: <laughs> I, especially where you are in the GFW yeah. area, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know, I I only had a minor in in comp in school. In fact, my major was English. Um, so that's incongruous, certainly. But I needed a job, and and uh, I had a little bit of skill with uh, you know the first generation uh, IBM XTs and. And so that was my work, and uh, so I've been doing it for a very long time. I did, uh, at the very beginning of networking, I worked in Banyan Vines and and that kind of stuff at Budget Rent-A-Car. Oh, uh, you know, COAX and cables. I them. Yeah. With, with AAUI and COAX, sure. Um, <laughs> and we even had a Vibrax back then, which, by the way, was really cool stuff. Yeah. Um, so oh, uh, years go by, certainly. A uh, number of different experiences, a number of different technologies. And I started working for a firm called RapidApp out of Chicago, which was a consulting firm. And uh, I uh, I got exposed to this uh, VMware stuff, mm-hmm. which I thought was incredibly interesting. And, um, I, I'd sort of been working with VMware since about a thousand GTP visits. Um so um I I got out of consulting after a while and I and I joined Zurich Insurance where with my experience in VMware, um I was basically running what was at the time one of the largest VMware environments in the world. And in fact, um the first uh enterprise license agreement that VMware ever sold was to me. Yeah, course. Cool. Yeah, it is pretty cool. I I like these, you know, this this is the kind of stories the old people get to tell.
1: Oh, yeah, I'm right there with you. Don't don't worry about it. You and I are on the same page.
0: Yeah, I hear you. So uh, a little bit of time passes, uh, about five years running this environment. We did have um, our app delivery through Citrix, so I did a lot of Citrix there as well. First, uh, uh, virtualized desktop environment, and those were fat Windows XP desktops for our developer community. We had about 10,000 of them.
1: Oh, wow. That's huge. And I'm sure it was difficult because there was no, you know, standards or, you know, industry standards or a methodology
0: in place that people could use was universal. well, yeah, it's think about it, it's kind of like the beginning of the DevOps movement, uh, way before anybody even considered it. We right. had images. We you know, if you needed an XP desktop, we'd deploy an image. You no, know, it was all manual. It wasn't like like the the disposable desktops we deploy today in uh, non persistent formats and things like that. But um, but things were pretty stable and, and they worked really well. Uh, we talked a little bit earlier about outsourcing, and at at a certain point, uh, Zurich decided to outsource their IT folks to uh, uh, to a big three letter conglomerate, um, <laughs> uh, not beginning with I. Um, I was just,
1: I was laughing because all of the AXP a- 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 F- or cloud you know v- uh, vendors today are all a c s or e d s you know what i mean it's not uh, everything has a three letter <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to
0: it. <laughs> it's the t l a right um in this in this case it was c f c uh and i did have uh some trepidation about joining c f c which <laughs> i think was appropriate but at the same time um e m c uh had this mandate to develop this V Specialist team. Uh, mm-hmm. my um interview process with Chad Package went really well. Uh and I got hired to be the first official um team of V V specialists at, at EMC and, and it was an amazing experience. Of course it was pre sales and pre sales to me was a, a very new uh okay. yeah practice. Yeah. Uh, well pre
1: wow. sales is tough because you've got you've got a customer who's asking you to um cook it an egg perfectly and serve to them exactly where they like it and then you've got to take that back to your engineering team that's going to deliver the solution. And sometimes the solution, you know, um changes because the environment is different than they expected or they see something that they, they can't change, that they have to figure out a way around. So, um it's kind of a precarious place to live because you've got the customer on one side and then you've got engineering delivery on the other
0: and that's well, a That's, a, a
1: very
0: that's yeah. true and, 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 and to a very great extent that's the challenge or one of the challenges of the job is, is to try to exact as much detailed information as you can before you start architecting a solution. Right. The, um, the team was unbelievable. Uh, and at the time, it was the it was built um, around the concept of having a, a core group of, of architects at EMC that not only understood the storage world uh, that EMC was selling, and at the time it was really just two platforms, that was the, the Clarion and the VMAX, uh, but also understood virtualization because, um, you know, there, there was some um, – some difficulties interacting with the with the pre sales folks over at VMware. It's right. Um, well, the, the cultures
1: problem. are EMC's culture, uh, company culture, and the company culture at VMware are people don't know this, but they're extremely different. You know, EMC is an older company, and they've had a long time to develop this, this company culture, and it's a little bit more, um, I would say, conservative. Then VMware, because VMware, and, and I'm speaking from my own experience here, because I've worked, you know, closely with both companies in the past, um, and I'm, I understand their culture. VMware, the culture is a lot more aggressive and a lot more kind of like everybody's a cowboy, you know? So, and they're it's always nice, riding right right. right off the reservation, and you're just like, dude, get back over here onto the reservation. I mean, they're just so competitive, and it's just an environment of people who are just, Hardline um, VMware, you know, um, fans, and, and, and you know they just will not accept <laughs> kind of um, any kind of thing that would you know tie them down or hold them back. They're, they're just that
0: that type of group. Yeah, yeah, but at the time, uh, and and you know, I don't I don't know that that's necessarily the case today, uh, Glenda. But I I do think that at the time. There was a little bit of, uh, of conflict between the two organizations because, um, EMC had, had very, very pre- recently, prior to that, actually acquired VMware. You mm-hmm. so know, there was, a, there was some pushback from the folks at, at VMware in terms of, of promoting EMC equipment simply because they felt like they were being swallowed up into a massive conglomerate. And, and they did well, have that yeah. sort of wild, wild, wild
1: attitude. Um, well, in plus you got to understand that the sure. employer um, worked on sure. every platform, and EMC wanted them to always take EMC into the customer. And a lot of times, the customer was at HP or um, you know IBM or you know something like or that. Yeah. yeah. They just they yes. didn't want um, they didn't want to um, limit their their customer
0: opportunities by always pushing EMC. and to Joe yeah. uh, Tucci's credit at the time he realized that that was a talent um, yeah. and so creating this team uh, under Chad was was really appropriate for EMC at the time to give a uh, sort of a collaborative uh, presentation the customer base, but also promoting EMC equipment. It made a lot of sense. Uh, also, to Joe's credit, you know, very soon thereafter, he um, he sold back a good percentage of the company uh, to VMware so that they could be viewed by the rest of the ecosystem as an independent and not entirely reliant on EMC. So there were some really smart moves. Um also at the time they were introducing this V block platform which which um again is uh, to, to use the phrase we we discussed earlier today, um the X eighty six mainframe. Mm-hmm. Uh and and while everything had been uh distributed prior to this, the whole idea was to bring everything back into one sort of uh centralized environment. Holistic uh, holistic kind of environment, yeah. And, and again, a, a wonderful platform. Uh, Cisco UCS servers are, are great, um, and they were very game-changing at the time. They have some very revolutionary technology built into them.
1: Right, like the UCS um, stuff. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And and so the B block was a rock-solid platform. So it was still very, very new, and it was a it was an investment uh, in the cost. This, by the way, was before BCE even existed. Right. So, so um, which by the way, Chad's package now happens to run. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, been a, been around for a long time. Um yeah. It was. I had a great time there, but but quite honestly, for me, um, you know, it was a very competitive pre-sales uh, environment, and a very high-profile environment, and I wasn't quite prepared for it
1: yeah that that kind of visibility can be um you know
0: draining <laughs> exactly uh and so while I loved working there it, it really wasn't the best um experience for me or honestly for for e m c and i moved on um, yeah. so uh i you know i did a little bit of private consulting for a while did a couple of uh uh of v d i implementations um privately mm-hmm. and then um time moved on and I joined uh vmware and again mm-hmm. I loved vmware uh this was not too long ago, just a couple of years ago mm-hmm. and um and the group that I was working on at, at vmware was uh was based on this software defined data center model that's uh not too different from the VX what what we currently know as BS Rail, mm-hmm. um, in terms of, in terms of equipment, but mm-hmm. uh, our particular group's model, which was a, a sort of privately funded by Carl Szymczak, was um, was very different in that we were all about um, creating a model of distributed deployment to include um, an AWS. Uh, uh, you know a vCloud era, you realize suite, uh, so that in deploying an application, you could choose where you want to deploy that as an administrator from either on-prem to off-prem. Right. Uh, it was um, it was a great idea, a little bit ahead of its time, uh, and based on the the massive apps that we were trying to deploy, things like JD Edwards and uh, and SAP and and the, the big sort of corporate apps. Uh, right. It took a, a lot of massaging to get those apps uh, to uh, to go where we wanted them to go, custom scripting, et cetera. Right. one of those are enormous apps. They have
1: a lot of modules, and, um, you know,
0: they take up a lot of juice as well. So I understand. And, and each one of them had, you know, sort of a different model for mm-hmm. deployment. So, you know, this, this customer wanted this app, this, that, that customer wanted that one, and each implementation was truly custom. Right. Uh, and, and quite honestly, in order to do something like that, you really have to have a piece of software that's so flexible uh, in, in terms of its ability to deploy that um, it was uh, able to handle these various applications from the ground right. up
1: massively complex applications and every customer wanted something different so there were different feature sets that they wanted and you know jd edwards and fhc they offer that to the customer and um then you know as the um, person who has to implement it you're just kind of like well thank you jd edwards
0: thank you yeah. and, and, and thank you for changing the way you did things yeah um which, which happens on a regular basis so so the the team actually disbanded after about a year mm-hmm. and um, and I found myself uh, uh getting um employed by a a fairly significantly sized um integrator uh, mm-hmm. called onyx uh, which is called o n x so it's pronounced mm-hmm. onyx um, and uh Onyx grew out of the agilicis group, if you recall them.
1: Uh-huh. Okay. Um,
0: we we've got about uh, 700 750 employees, uh-huh. uh, and I'm the solutions architect. Actually, just got promoted to team lead out of um, out of the Chicago metro region, which uh-huh. uh, my territory covers probably from Louisville up through Denver. Uh-huh. It's a good size uh, territory. And well, uh, does that does I'm include love, a lot of traveling? Because you've got to be—you're yeah. a consultant. I'm assuming that you have to travel a lot for the work. Yeah, not not too much, but uh, it's certainly traveling that I can handle. Okay, um, but but I do love what I'm doing, and it's a wonderful company, and they're very um, very kind of focused on on their practice groups. Uh, we have a managed service provider. We do on-demand services. We offer recruitment services for companies that, that need uh, FTEs, uh, and, and we do hosting facilities, and, and we have an Azure product, and we do a lot of OpenStack and SAP HANA. Uh, we have a whole big data practice that's, that's been quite robust. And, um, but I am still working in the, in the same world. George has moved on a lot, and I've moved on a lot with it. So um, one of the beauties of working for a company that has a large portfolio, certainly we have our, our, our key partners, but so we have a large portfolio to draw from, and uh, that means that I can be very creative in, in providing solutions to my customers based very, very much so on their needs. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. I was like, well,
1: we were talking earlier, and you were saying that you're doing a lot of HP work, um, you know, right yeah. now, and you've been exposed to love HP stuff, and you know, I, I I worked for HP for for a while in the R and D environment in uh, Houston, and I loved it, but um, I felt like I was trapped in a never ending
0: Asperger's convention, you know. <laughs> I love so, that. yeah, there, there is, it's an interesting culture, and and they do hire some brilliant, brilliant people, but certainly with pretty uh, with brilliant uh, engineers comes a lot of idiosyncrasy. So I, I I definitely understand what you're saying. Um, I, uh, yeah, HP is one of our, our key pillars of, uh, of partnership, along with Cisco and VMware and Oracle. We have a huge Oracle practice, um, as well as a few key others. We're doing a lot of work lately with, for example, pure storage. But I guess uh, getting to the... Um, sort of focus of what we were hoping to discuss today uh, is some of the cool stuff that's taking place over at HPE. Mm-hmm. Um, and and please, I need to remember to use that E. Yeah, um, I know.
1: Because it's, it's a completely different organization uh, so they say. So, um, well, that's
0: actually part of this conversation is, is that HPE to HPE split. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: I, I really think they're making some some bold and interesting moves as a, as a company. And well, in a way, you know,
1: they've got made. So, I mean, the fact is that she's the first CEO that they had in, um, you know, so long that's not totally, you know, corrupt or, you know, an egomaniac. So, I mean, she <laughs> just she just came in and she settled everything down. I mean, they, they tried to get – I can't remember his name, but he was an older gentleman from a smaller company to come in, and he just – um. Yeah, he failed so. Yeah, he face planted so hard, and he dropped him so quick, and I felt so bad for him. But when Meg came in, she really stabilized the company, and it's awesome because you know, as a woman, I think it's pretty incredible that that she did that. And there was a tweet from HP that said, "Um, you know, uh, being babies is what made made um, Meg a success." And I tweeted back to them saying. Well, that that's really enlightening um, for you to say that you know this woman who is incredibly accomplished um, is only successful because of some stuffed animals. I mean, are you kidding me with this? You guys, you know, marketing, shut up, and zip it. You know.
0: <laughs> well, I I actually agree with you though. I think she's amazing, and and I I, I love the new Attitude Factor. So you know, for example, uh, when when HP. At the time, HP bought three parts, Mm -hmm. uh, or when they bought left-hand, which Mm -hmm. were going to be the next plateau for their storage environment, because if you recall the E V A that certainly didn't have anything at all revolutionary in it. Um, They sort of sat on that technology for a long time.
1: Yeah, they did. the
0: The joke was that, you know, HP was where storage went to die, (laughs) <laughs> um, and, yeah, but you know they're developing. They're really pushing these platforms forward in many interesting ways. I, I look at at what the left hand was and is now called Pure Virtual, and I think on on pretty much every level it competes wholeheartedly with DSAN, mm-hmm. Um and and I think that's a, a very compelling thing because it didn't. And Mm -hmm. you've got the ability to cross clusters, and you've got hybrid or all um, flash capacities in in your uh, in your what is today called pure virtual. You've got um, three part is now one of the most interesting and robust storage plays in in the industry. Mm
1: -hmm. It is
0: enterprise class. It's federated. You can use the same software to manage. Whether you've got one of the smaller environments and it's all spinning disk, or one of the largest two thousand series or twenty thousand series, and it's all solid state, it mm-hmm. doesn't matter. It's all manageable by the same interface, and I think mm-hmm. that's brilliant, mm-hmm. uh, which no other company really offers. Right. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not disparaging, say NetApp, who who founded a bit, um, and and certainly the acquisition yeah. of SolidFire by NetApp is a huge. Uh, boon for that. And, well, as far as like, like
1: storage and stuff goes, I mean, what about what's going on with like Nutanix where they're kind of trying to bring the storage back to the server, you know, and make it local? Cool.
0: I, I think there's a great play for Hyperconverge.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: uh, I, you know, I, I have my own opinions on on the, um, the simplivities and Nutanixes of the world, and I think they they really do fit um, a use case that's that, Many companies require, uh-huh. um, and but again, that's like probably the fastest growing uh segments of the market right now. With players like Maxa and and Pivot Three, and uh, you know, I could go. Gridstore has one. There's so many different hyper-converged solutions today. Right. Um, but again, I don't think that's just a storage play. Um, yeah, and. Well, right, because they've
1: got, they've got a, they've got a um, hypervisor, and, I mean, it's, it's more than that. They have they OEM hardware, so they, there's a specific hardware platform. So, I mean, it, it, I understand what you're saying. It's, it's, um, it, it, everything like that, when you've got something that is, um, you know, that's fully owned by a company, um, and it's proprietary, and it's not open, you know, you kind of, like, once you do, once
0: you make a commitment to that, you're committed, you know. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know if you, if you're looking to, to, for example, I mean, the, or one of the ideal use cases for hyperconverged is your remote office, back office type solution, mm-hmm. right? So, um, I don't know that the the lock in is quite so stringent when you're looking to support, you know, a, a, a a remote office with 50 virtual machines or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, what I do believe is there are other solutions out there that may be more well-suited depending on your particular needs. In fact, uh, uh, getting back to HP, they have this uh, HC, uh, right now they have a 250 and a 380 in their line.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: and and the beauty there is is that it fully integrates with with an HP infrastructure across the board. So if you want replication to your, you know, larger Hewlett-Packard enterprise um, environment that's back at home office, uh, these HP platforms are really well-suited for that full-stack integration. Uh, and, and I I like that. Um, and I'm not saying you can't do that with, with some of these other players. I just think that, you know, the beauty of, of what's happening, one of the beauties of what's happening at HPE right now is a, a vision that I've never seen them have before, in that all sort of components, with no desire to lock you in, Certainly, they want to sell products, but not, it's not about lock-in, it's about integration. So if you do have a remote office that, that needs a, an HC380, which, by the way, runs on this cool new Apollo server stuff, mm-hmm.
1: um,
0: and, and back at the at your home office, you're, you're running a full, like, say you've got Store Virtual uh, running there, and you've got Store Once as your overarching backup application suite. Uh, backup. Actually, I, I hate the word backup, by the way. Let's just say recovery. Because <laughs> uh, what good is a backup if you can't recover, right? Um, right, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, but again, the whole vision of this infrastructure is that it's all part of one large environment. And it's, right. it's interesting because we're, we're taking, you know, the FlexPod D-block world – way beyond to the next uh level in in my opinion at least. Right. With well that, all
1: of this back end stuff that we're dealing with, like all of this stuff, you know, that's becoming um converged and um, you know, whatever the convergent movement, um, you know, all of this is I think being driven by the end user and what their needs are. And, you know, for me, um, I've noticed that when you're architecting any kind of solution, regardless of whether it's storage or, you know, convert, convert stuff or um, open stack. you basically have to, you know, start from the end user and, and figure out what they're going to be doing so that you could create the solution on the back end. And that's, that's not how it started. You know, it started out with us going, um, we're going to design a solution for the, for the data center and you're just going to have to live with it. And now it's more like, so what do you need? <laughs> how can we well, make
0: your life better? You yeah, that's very true. Um, and and our our goal in, in designing these systems for our customers is, uh, is is rapid deployment and and agility and all these buzzwords that the industry loves so much. But when when push comes to shove, it's about giving the end user the experience, the seamless experience that they need, so that in many ways they don't swipe a credit card and start deploying to AWS. Exactly. Yeah. Um, not that AWS is bad in a in a an ideal use case, uh, burst infrastructure or or uh, you know multiple web servers clustered for hosting web apps or, or things like that. AWS is a perfect use case. Well, so
1: yeah, I mean they you know the, I think you know
0: people universally
1: just see them as the the best and you know kind of leading edge cloud,
0: you know, provider, so it makes well, sense. Well, they are a juggernaut, you know, it's, it's yeah. hard to compete. It's, it, that's why, for example, and I, I'll, I'll bring HPE in yet again, that's why HPE is not in the the public clouds with Helion anymore, yeah. which is a very smart move. Yeah. Helion still exists. It's an open stack distro so that, uh, as well as an entire Suite of applications to support it, uh, more like Red Hat than anything else um, in in that space, but with a huge array of potential um, ancillary tools that would help our customers to do an OpenStack deployment with potential burst to AWS or to Azure, um, but. In this case, not a true public offering, right? So, so in this case, it's it's an adjunct to your to your home or on-prem infrastructure, and and not your public cloud infrastructure. Um, it, it by no means has gone away. They just made a really smart business decision to say we can't compete with with the uh, the soft layers, the uh, the Azures and the Amazons yeah. We're a public cloud offering. Let's focus our efforts on what our customers really need um, and deliver the best potential solution for them. In in you know and other-
1: collaborate with like you know all of these other companies like Amazon. Um,
0: exactly.
1: You know because they're that's what they're good at. So why not let them be good at it and just do what you're good at.
0: Exactly. And, and OpenStack is so flexible in so many ways with certain key standards mm-hmm. such on um, storage, and, et cetera, um that um, these, these infrastructural decisions can be made, um, you know, with an ideal focus on, on really delivering the best user experience as push comes to shove all the way down to your to your end users or your application developers. Yeah. yeah. So that's part of that global approach that I that I'm really getting uh, jazzed about with HPE. They understand where they best play and where they don't best play, and they're not going to um, they're not going to build infrastructure for uh, a marginal solution. They're building it for the best solution, which yeah. which brings me actually very nicely. I'm segueing myself. How about that? That's uh, groovy. It is groovy to this whole um, composable infrastructure and synergy view, uh-huh. um, and and they are building these x86 mainframes. This this large synergy infrastructure, which by the way I've seen, uh, although it hasn't yet been released,
1: uh-huh. is
0: just beautiful. The,
1: <laughs>
0: uh, really, the the. Engineering that went into play to build these infrastructures, the the whole managed through one view architecture that that this synergy platform is doing um, or will be doing, and and that's really it, right? It's all about a vision of what the modern data center. I hate that um, next gen data center catchphrase.
1: Yeah, well, and I hate the whole you know phrase holistic, but really that's what everybody's trying to focus on right now is the holistic thing because they want a, a holistic and, uh, solution so that you know it it includes you know not only you know the storage but the or, or the, uh, infrastructure but the end user the whole ecosystem
0: as you said earlier. Yeah, yeah, it's really quite brilliant, uh, and, and I'm I'm impressed with the the moves they're making. And you mentioned Meg, and I think she is a a, a great – oh, let's just add another one. Last year at, at HPE Discover, or what was called HP Discover last year um, – I just got back from this year, by the way. But last year, uh, they introduced the Aruba acquisition. So now they've got a full stack, including a, a very robust um, networking platform. With a software-defined approach, including all wired and wireless information, um, to be to be managed through again that same one-view uh, application. As 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 we move forward, we're really. I mean, I remember, for example, when the v block was introduced and the IONICS was going to be the centralized management platform to do uh your UCS manager, your your uh, storage management, your your deployment to uh to bare metal, and your deployment to virtual, et cetera. Well mm-hmm. that's where um the the vision for Vblock was. And and mm-hmm. again, the whole idea is let's do more with less. Mm-hmm. Let's manage our environment as seamlessly as possible with as few people as possible. As few right. hands-on as possible. And, you know, I think that you've taken a massive step forward in the vision that HPE has. Boy, I am a commercial today, aren't I?
1: Well, um, you know, the fact is, is you got to go with what you know, and you've been working with a lot of HP. And, you know, like I said, I used to work for HP, and I know, um, you know, what goes on, you know, under the covers. And, honestly, they – you know, they've got some of the most brilliant people in R&D that I've ever met. I mean, they've got, like, a huge, huge um, trough of just um, knowledge and stuff that they can tap into to, to come up with these ideas. So I, I don't think that it's, uh, you know, inappropriate to um, kind of toot their horn a little bit, you know?
0: Well, right. And I think that, um, you know, the some of the industry – view of HPE hasn't probably been that positive. But well, they've
1: had a lot of stuff going on with, you know, huh. CEOs over the last, you know, 15, 20 years. I mean, they've, they've, they've had to put up with a lot and they've had a huge number of layoffs. I mean, they has been cold down to the point where it's just um, bare bones, you know, and um, the um, last CEO, what was his name? Um, Mark Hurd. Yeah, um, we used to call him Herd the Turd. Um, (laughs) He really was a person who would burn the furniture to keep the building. And, um, you know, that's how he, you know, the way that he, you know, saved money was to get rid of everybody and not invest in R&D. And that's why, you know, HP didn't have a tablet offering. When everything was coming out with, you know, everybody was coming out with tablets. HP had it on their, um, you know, they they had the, the capability of doing it, but um, there were so many people that got laid off and, and, you know, funding for R&D was so low because of, you know, Mark Heard that they just couldn't, um, you know, get that out, you know, at the time. And it was just something that really was frustrating to a lot of people in R&D. I mean, everybody yeah. in R&D had... Um, you know, basically, you know, every time he turned around, there was another layoff, and he he just would not uh, fund R and D, and R and D at HP has been sacred
0: um, for a long, it, it long time. It should be, As, yeah, yeah, you're right. It should be a sacred cow, and it, uh, and uh, you know, in the same way that a startup struggles if they focus on uh, on marketing and sales, and they don't focus on on moving that product forward. Um, I, I think that you're right. I think that the customer is not going to be interested in buying a product that, uh, that hasn't shown significant growth. Uh, and, and that's one of the things that really intrigues me about HPE today is they really are building new and interesting, and they're not following the rest of the pack. They're building um, architectures that are truly different and truly exciting. And you know, look, storage is 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 crazy. Storage is really the hot topic, right? Oh yeah,
1: it has been for a while. I mean, when BDI uh, came out, um, everybody who you know had any sense knew that you know it was going to be very disruptive for storage. You know, right? Because I/O
0: is is the key there. Exactly. Um, you, you're you. Let's start from the very beginning. You can't build a. a VDI platform on a an infrastructure that can't support the I/O of boot storms or uh, or or that yeah, antivirus scans or what have you. Um, yeah. These are going to they drive so much I/O back to the backend storage that mm-hmm. if the storage is crawling, the VDI environment simply doesn't work. And yeah, and that was
1: that was a roadblock for a lot of people when VDI first started. That was something that held the deployments back. I mean, for a lot of years, DDI was just a concept because nobody was really deploying it in production because right. all of the you know um, proof of concepts were performing so poorly.
0: Actually, my experience was slightly different. I'd say the POCs and the pilots would work really well, but but scaling those up would, well that's, would that's be what up. I meant
1: when you started you know, when you started really hitting them. Um, and, you know, getting people to, you know, actively use them for your, you know, end-user acceptance testing. Um, When users actually started pounding those, um, you know, the performance just started degrading so quickly, and all they did was complain and revert back to their other, you know, um, systems so that they could get their
0: work done. Totally true. Absolutely. And, and, you know, it's like I go back to the early days of of Citrix when I was working with that stuff, and, and if your user base experiences even a, a perceived sluggishness, and it may not even be accurate. But it might not even well, be citric-based. Yeah. Well, right, exactly. Um, if, if it doesn't work as well as the application that's already loaded chat on your desktop, then, you know, you're not going to get the buy-in from your and user community. Exactly, and, and those problems have now been resolved. Yeah, uh, it still needs to be architected well. You still need a, a nice lean desktop that that you know got some of the things like prefetch and and indexing and stuff like that removed mm-hmm. from their from their profiles. But you can get a Windows 10 desktop down to about uh, thirty thirty five read write IOPS per desktop let's scale that up at 10,000 desktops and 35 read-write IOPS I per, that's a huge amount of IO. Yes, it is. Overwhelming. Unless, unless you've got a storage environment that's, that's architected well to support that um, with enough size and enough IO to manage that level uh, of requirement, your, your VDI platform is going to fall on its face.
1: Well, speaking of, speaking of that, how do you do your scaling testing? I mean, do you have an app that you use, or yeah. is it a screen test that you use? <laughs> you know, everybody. But, uh, you know, I, I, I usually end up with a screen test, but, um, you know, I know that
0: there's yeah. a lot of products out there
1: that you can use for scale testing.
0: <laughs> um, I love that. Um, yeah, I mean, ultimately, what, what, when push comes to shove, it's about – um, math, right? I, you know, I typically use a homegrown spreadsheet,
1: uh-huh.
0: uh, and and, um, and I and I do that math, right? I, I take your your slew of sample desktops, and, uh-huh. and uh, you know, one of the things that that I like is uh, Liquidware Labs has a great tool, um, I, you know, and they're not the only ones, uh-huh. um, but when you do a, a test deployment on a series of Uh, you know, sort of uh, distinct work group-focused deployment. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, uh, uh, say there's five images that you deploy. You take those five images and you deploy, you know, 20 desktops to each of the five. That's 100 licenses of of these types of tools. Uh, And then you do the math. Uh, at, At a random sampling of 100, Scaled up to um, 5,000. I'm throwing numbers out with no particular use in mind, no customer in mind.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, that math will will play itself out. So if but, if you've got uh, you know 350,000 IOPS required, then you have to scale your storage environment to support that, and you have to scale at peak. You can't scale at um, you know, at West level or, or daily use level, you have to scale for peak, right? Uh, so, three hundred and fifty thousand IOPS used to be an incredibly daunting uh, number when you when you particularly rely nothing on uh, on nothing but spinning disks. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a big fan of VFS, for example, uh, which uh, is the, uh, the the file system created by Sun Microsystems. Which mm-hmm. was uh, which was in play before uh, before Oracle bought Sun, and mm-hmm. it's still very much a part of the uh, the, the Oracle Storage platform.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and and the beauty of, of VFS was that you could you could actually divide out your read cache and your write cache and grant however much you need simply by adding more SSD into each of those layers. Mm-hmm. Uh, Great, great stuff. Um, it's harder today uh, using something other than ZFS right. to sort of isolate read cache versus write cache. Right. Um, but, but even so, you have to take those, those raw numbers and, and put them into your formula. And uh, based on, you know, the direction the customer wants to go with their storage, say they, they don't want ZFS for whatever reason, um but they want something say all solid state.
1: Uh-huh. Well we
0: can do we can do that with a with a three par or a, a pure storage or a solid fire or any of a number of devices out there that, that actually manages um that sort of thrust mm-hmm. in a in an all solid state environment. Um
1: So so basically what you're saying is is you use the spreadsheet and then you wait for people to
0: screen. Well, yeah.
1: I mean. I'm just just, just kind of like, because, you know, how many customers are going to want to buy Listener Labs licenses so that you can do scaling testing? (laughs) Not many. So, you know, you just do a spreadsheet and and you're going in there with just these raw numbers and, you know, start to scientifically and, you know, um, kind of academically apply them and then you start testing. You're still waiting for people to start seeing, you know, <laughs> just to well, wait, you know if
0: right. it's working or not. So this is this is important, Glenda, because um, you know, going back to the early days of virtualization, you know, it was always the uh, the the fact that now your your server isn't on bare metal. Your customer is going to say it doesn't work as well. Mm-hmm. We have to show evidence of the fact. I mean, they can scream all they want, but if they if they say, you know, it's not as good as it was, we mm-hmm. have to show them that, in fact, today is actually better than it was, and this is why. And there's all yeah. sorts of interesting discrete um, rationale behind why putting it on a virtual platform is more robust, it's more scalable, it's it's more expandable, it's, it's et cetera, et cetera. It's easier to manage. Yeah. Right. So that's part of it. But it's also very often these these complaints, and I'll I'll go to VDI as a perfect use case for this, Mm -hmm. they were all perception and not reality. Oh, exactly. So in many many cases, and and certainly not to cast dispersions on my user community, Mm -hmm. but certainly if you can say, actually, you're running 10% faster now than you were, and Mm -hmm. this is why, and here's evidence of it. That's right. a great analytics tool. Can really help you to uh, to resolve a lot of those issues. And and, and I go back to virtualization again. Mm-hmm. And you know, back when we started to deploy these apps, we'd put more cores in a a virtual server than the physical server ever needed. And in fact, those applications would run slower because the right. because the requirements of virtualization and the shared processor functionality or the shared memory use, yeah, functionality and, and the ballooning involved. Um, well, yeah, so and to
1: go, well, you go back to the end user, you've got, like, all of these generational differences in how people perceive um, what's going on, you know, with these kind of implementations. So older people like us who are used to having complete control over our, you know, PCs or our laptops or desktops or whatever, and the operating system that's on it, Um, And then having to change from that and go to a place where maybe you've just got a thin client and you're, you know, just using that as a dumb terminal to get to VDI or Citrix or whatever is on the back end, Um, you know, trying to offer you virtualization so that you have more flexibility. You know, the younger people demand that because they want the mobility, right? the older people who are, you know, also working – Um, are threatened by that. So it's it's kind of a weird dichotomy because of the generational, you know, generation
0: gaps that are going on right now. Oh, sure. Yeah, in in fact, it's funny you should say that because I remember one of the first big deployments I did, um, the users would get more upset when their wallpaper changed or their, uh, you know, where the location of their desktop icons moved to. Right, their profile changes
1: because it wasn't a local profile anymore. So they exactly. Just, so they we
0: had to we had to work really really hard to make their their customizations, their user profile consistent, regardless of you know what time of day, what environment they logged into, whether it was GDI or not, uh-huh. um, and and have those profiles replicate up to a, a you know a shared H drive somewhere on the in the environment and fold yeah. those things in. And when it was a non persistent desktop. Uh-huh. which, you know, you know we all know is, is ideal. It's ideal, yeah. Right. Hey, um,
1: Coke, you owe me a
0: Coke.
1: <laughs> <Sorry>.
0: <laughs> I love it. Um, you know, it, it, that took some, some real nuance in, in architecting this environment, but but that was going to be a complaint from our user community. If it doesn't look the same, if it doesn't look the way they want it, If right. in many cases they couldn't get to those, Those holiday pictures they took or that iTunes library that they were storing up in their home directory, which of course we know a big no-no, it was, you know, it would, again, fall flat on its face. And so we needed to accommodate to a certain extent. And and many, many times my customers would just write a policy that says, thou shalt not put thine iTunes directory on your third home directory. Right, right, yeah. And all of the print
1: issues, um, you remember those, right? Dealing with yeah. all of the network printing issues, taking the local printers and turning them into network printers and
0: forcing yeah, people to... No, nobody yeah. really did that well but Citrix at the time. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. Well, I remember having to go into a printing file, a, a WSP printing file, um, back when I was using um, uh, uh, Metaprint, uh-huh. <laughs> and oh, actually yeah. type out... Um, the printer name and says equals, and you know give it a um, a driver an HP I think we were using HP4 drivers um, uh. and we were forcing every printer to use an HP4 universal driver. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we had to replicate that file across all the Citrix servers and we had hundreds, so that was so much fun. Um, but yeah, it was. We didn't have a policy. You know, we did have a policy that stated, you know, you could only use these specific printers. So we were really lucky when I worked for Singular before it became AT&T. Um, you know, we had, you know, 40,000 users. And um, basically, you know, we said these are the only printers that you can use. And so if they had printers at home that were not the same printer um, and you didn't have that driver on the server, like installed locally on the server, um, we would get people who would call us and complain, and luckily we had buy-in from upper management that said, "You know, this is the policy. We don't support this specific printer. Sorry," and you could just hang up. You know, but yeah, um, a lot. Your, your
0: Lexmark inkjet printer,
1: right? <laughs> a lot of companies did not have that. I mean, after I left uh, and I started working for other companies, um, you know, they didn't have that kind of power. You
0: know? And I guess it's because they didn't have 40,000 concurrent users. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's definitely better today. Um, and, you know, redirecting to your USB-connected printer or even now today with your Wi-Fi-connected printer, um, you can do fairly straightforward in either Horizon View or in in Zen Desktop. Mm-hmm. And, and thank God for that because, you know, how I don't know about you, but I don't ever print.
1: Uh, no, I don't anymore either. Uh, I, honestly, I did so much work um, just off of my phone, and it's crazy to me. And, you know, there are companies out there that are trying to accommodate that, too. I mean, um, you know, uh, I was working with at um, Citrix Synergy. Um, I did a project for the company, and what they do is, is they skin the app and just offer, like, these large, huge applications like, say, J.D. Edwards, What they'll do Uh is they'll they'll, um, make it possible for you just to publish out and offer up a single module of that application so that somebody Uh who's on a phone or a tablet can actually access just the module that they need so that they won't be overwhelmed with this huge app that they have to navigate on a small device. That's cool. Yes, it is, and Citrix, I think, is going to buy that company. They dumped about $4 million into uh, uh last year. So um, I think that's a big red flag saying, hey, everybody, Citrix is going to buy it.
0: Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, there's certainly, as you say, there's certainly a ton of space for new, um, new players in these spaces. And, the, and one of the interesting things, I think, is, is how, to a certain extent, fragmented and, to a certain extent, centralized. Uh, this, this whole concept, and you know, we'll, we'll use VDI as a good example, it's an ecosystem unto itself. I look at, at uh, tools like, uh, I don't know if you recall, but I spent a little bit of time on the advisory team for two clouds. Uh, with- no, I do remember that.
1: You know, you and I go back to quite a ways, and I, I think it's kind of funny that we've known each other for many years, but we've never met in person.
0: <laughs> well, I tried. I was in Dallas not too long ago, and I, I reached out to you, but you're never in Chicago. Uh,
1: no, I'm not. I love Chicago, though. I've been there many times, and I love the people, and I love the um, whole kind of groove there. And... Uh, you know, if I had to move anywhere, it, you know, like, um, you know, east, it would probably be something like Chicago because I like, you, know, you know, I don't like the, the weather, but I like the people. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, it, it is a great time. Um, I did have a wonderful time. Last time I was in Plano, um, I did a, a convergence seminar uh, at the HPE campus down there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, you know, I've never spent any time in Plano or Frisco before. Although uh, I've been to Dallas many times, enjoyed myself as well. I I, I love it when
1: you call it the HP campus because it's actually the EDS campus that HP acquired. I, I so, know. So I still call it the EDS campus.
0: Well, and and that's fair. I just don't. I never went there when it was EDS. It's a weird place. It feels like. Uh, well, it totally feels like it was built during the Kennedy administration. Um, that's what uh, it was. <laughs> right, right. But the architecture is really kind of wild, isn't it? Yeah. And it's yeah. so ghost-towny right now.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it is.
0: <laughs> a little steps forward.
1: It is. You know, there's kind of a herd mentality, I, and, you know, it, it's kind of um, – funny, uh if you've got a sense of humor which, you know, in IT we do have kind of tricky sense of humor it, it's funny and it's fun to just mess with people. Um so, you know, you go there and you just poke people until they cry. But uh, you know, they they are they are they can be kind of um, you know, like that. I've got I've actually got some friends that work there. Uh-huh. <laughs> so yeah, I mean it is it is kind of a weird culture. But um you know, they they get it done. They get it done.
0: Yep. Um so do you have any other questions?
1: Well, I mean, I think you know we we've, we've covered all the the stuff that we were, we were um planning to um and you know the funny thing is is that um you pretty much interviewed yourself. <laughs> 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 Thank you for doing my work for me. Um uh. uh, so funny yeah I love you so I'm I'm very happy with this um, conversation and um, you know if you want to you know provide anybody with um, or the listeners with kind of your social media um, existence so that they can follow you if they want which I think is a good idea because I follow you and um, I think that you're worth following and in fact you're one of my favorites um, you know, my oh.
0: my my what follow I frequent follow you. Oh. <laughs> so um so you know, sure. give it up on Twitter on Twitter I'm um, at M B L E I B. We spell that wrong in my family. Because yep. um, pronounce pronounced Lieb in German it would be L I E B but we don't spell it that way. Um okay. my blog is virtually tied to my desktop. Um and uh, I've been spending a lot of time late with folks from Tech Field Day. Uh-huh. So you can watch some videos, uh, Swords Field Days. I'm actually going this week to a Tech Field Day in Boston. Um, uh-huh. So uh, on any of Foskis' links, if if uh, if those uh, listeners know, uh, see Foskis at TechFieldDay.com, follow the YouTube channel. You can see me on the on many of those videos as well. Um and uh I have been doing some some posting on the uh the Solar Winds Wax site lately, which is very interesting. Uh and some very good conversations there as well. Mm-hmm. Plus I'm on LinkedIn, uh, uh, Matthew Lieb, And um I even post sometimes to our corporate blog. All right.
1: Well Groovy. Thank you so much, Matt. I really um you know, enjoyed this, um, you know, Uh, Conversation and uh, I really, you know, I've been chasing you for a while to get you to, um, you know, kind of have this conversation with me because I think it's something that, you know, people will find interesting and want to, you know, uh, hear about, and I mean, if they're technical. (laughs) If we're technical. (laughs) Um, Well, you know, the fact is is you, you speak in technical language, you know, and a lot of people who aren't as technical are, are probably going to, um, you know, kind of lose focus, but, you know, I do have a lot of followers who are extremely technical, so I'm not that worried about it, because <laughs> my audience is technical, um, and I'm, is a, cool. I'm the same way, um, I did an interview with um, a young woman who has a blog that she just focuses on women in technology, and oh. I, yeah, I was the second person that she interviewed. And it was funny because the first person she interviewed was, uh, like, a product manager. Uh And then she interviewed me. And when she, you know, she released it, um, basically a lot of people went out to read it or uh, listen to it. And, you know, they were tweeting. well, this is a really complex and, and, you know, technical conversation. And I was just like, Jesus, what are you – do you expect me just to you know come out there and try to sell you something. Of course, it's going to be a technical conversation. Women in technology, um, but I think that <laughs>
0: um,
1: I think that the perception was is that women aren't that technical, and it
0: was just well, funny that's a to terrible me. Terrible perception.
1: I know, but it was it was funny to me because you know people didn't expect you know the, the conversation to be technical, and I was just like, jeez. You know, this feels like 30 years ago, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like, you didn't expect me to have a technical conversation. And, you know, the fact of the matter is, is the young woman, her name is Lauren Mal- Malhoy. Oh, my Lord. I do, too. Um, she, she is extremely technical. And okay. she was right there with me, you know? And she works at Cisco. And uh, she's lovely and intelligent. And, you know, she really... Has a lot of cool things to to say and talk about, and uh, I was I was honored to be the second person that she chose
0: for her um, podcast series. Yeah, um, she's fantastic. She also does a great job on speak or on um uh, impact we trust. Yeah, yeah.
1: So um yeah. You know, yeah, She does the adapting it that was the um, podcast that I did with her for adapting it series. And, it, like I said, it just focuses on women and technology. Though on um, Friday, what was it, um, Friday the 13th or, or um, what is that day where you play tracks? And she, April Fool's. April Fool's. <laughs> she, had, um, she had a man um, dressed as a woman um, on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, Mike Laverick. It was Mike Laverick. And he, um, you know, did the podcast dressed as a woman. And it was so yeah, funny. was
0: so funny. But he didn't do a dress as Elvis,
1: though. No, he didn't, although he's a big fan of Elvis, obviously. But, yeah, it it was hilarious because, you know, nobody expected Mike to dress like a woman (laughs) for a podcast. (laughs) He's a British guy. He's a British guy, you know? Those guys uh, don't really usually get into that kind of stuff. But um, he's he's wonderful. And, you know, we're sitting here name-dropping like a a couple of um, teenagers. So... (laughs) (laughs) Let's let's end the call on that note. Um, okay. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much.
0: And, oh, Linda, um, I'm happy to do it. I'm, I'm really pleased we got around to this. I've been meaning to uh, – we, well, we've been trying for a while, haven't we? But we no, have. I'm really, I really appreciate your time, and, and, you know, I hope that my messaging was good.
1: It, it was excellent and, um, you know, very comprehensive. Thank you very much, Matt, and have a wonderful um, time at Techfield Day. And if you come up with anything interesting, um, ping me because I'm always interested in hearing, you know, um, from you because you're one of the smartest people I know. So thank thank you. you. Have a wonderful, wonderful time, and thank you again. Have a great day. Bye.
0: You too. Bye. Bye.
1: For free at LuckyLandSlots.com, big bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18+. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.